0: One of my older siblings came home one day claiming they had won a contest at school and that they had gotten first prize, and the first prize for winning the contest was a Nintendo. Now, this was late 80s, and so some of you can think back to then. The Nintendo system was very popular at the time, also very expensive. Of all the kids in my neighborhood, only one, kid had a nintendo and i spent a great deal of time at his house so you can imagine when i heard this how excited i was i i was we were we were going to have a nintendo the next day my sibling came home from school and they came home empty-handed and they made the claim that something or other had gotten lost in the mail and that they would have to get it another day and For about two weeks, this sibling would come home, and I would ask if they got the Nintendo. And every day, there was a new reason they didn't have it. Eventually, my mother took them aside and found out that everything they had said was not true. There had never been a contest. There was never a Nintendo. It had been a lie. Now, I can no longer remember as to why uh, they lied about it. I just remember feeling so disappointed And how for a great deal of time there was some mistrust between me and this sibling and this sibling and the rest of the family. Now we come to, are we further into Matthew and we're looking at responses. Remember Jesus in chapter 13 has made a number of illustrations or parables about himself, about his kingdom. And we've started in the next section looking at all the ways that people responded. We looked at Nazareth. In Nazareth, they saw Jesus and they thought he was nothing special and so they rejected him. Last week we looked at Herod and how he rejected him because Herod Herod saw Jesus as a threat of Herod's love and power, a love of power and pleasure. Now as you heard, today we read a passage that ends with belief. It ends with uh, accepting Christ. And since we already know the account ends there, once again... I just want to walk us through how we arrive at that point. And so I have three points for you this morning. How did we end up now since we, we looked at an illustration of two illustrations of unbelief? Let's look at the pattern of the path it took to get to save what we would call saving faith. Number one, the first thing we see is that Jesus proves He is able. Jesus proves, He is able. So most of us are familiar with this first story. We probably heard it the first time in Sunday school. It's a very famous story. He's holding all four accounts of the Gospels. In fact, there are a number of books that are written just on this particular miracle. People who have built whole belief systems just on this miracle. But the point for Matthew is actually quite simple. These people were fed. They were hungry. And they were fed. The bread and the fish, very common dinner. It was a very common thing to sit down in your home every single night have bread and fish. The blessing that Jesus said over the food was a very common, normal practice at the dinner table. So really, all this is, is Matthew wants us to see the bare basics. These people needed food. And Jesus provided that food. Now the reason this is important is because what this proves is Jesus is able. Now, how does it do that? How does it prove that Jesus is able? First of all, Matthew wants us to consider the manna in the wilderness. We know the account tells us that this is a desert place or a desolate place. You want to understand, at that time, anything outside of a city... Anything outside of city walls, anything that was not developed or uh, clearly established or settled, anything outside of that was considered a desolate or desert place. That place was considered the wilderness. So twice, Matthew tells us that all of this is happening out in the wilderness. Now, can you think of a story in the Bible where people were out in the wilderness and they needed food? Matthew clearly wants us to understand or think about that story of manna in the wilderness. And so here we see Jesus providing manna in the wilderness just like God did through Moses. But the second thing is that Jesus provides food for the hungry just like Elisha. In 2 Kings chapter 4, Elisha the prophet performs a miracle that is very similar to this. He has a hundred men to feed and only has 20 loaves of bread. If they had not been fed, the men would not have made it. Now we know stories, of course, in other parts of the Bible, God uses a prophet to provide people food who are on the brink of starvation. So once again, clearly Matthew is trying to show us the same thing. Here it is, dinner time. The people are far from food. They need food. They are hungry. The disciples looked at the situation and said, we don't have the food to feed them. But the greater prophet provides the bread to the hungry. But then there's a third thing Matthew wants us to understand here because he makes it very clear. And that is that Jesus produces abundance. He produces abundance. The last idea, you see, first of all, he tells us that everyone who ate, after everybody ate, there were 12 baskets left over full of food. So do we start at the end with more food than we had at the beginning? Yes. Abundance. We also see that there was abundance, even though the crowd was made up of at least 5,000 men on top of women and children. So you have this great crowd who all need to eat, and Jesus provides not only everything they need to eat, but there is abundance. All of this proving that Jesus is able. Now, there's two applications to the story. First of all, Matthew tells us a couple of times. How Jesus shows compassion. Just like Elisha had uh, compassion on the, the hundred men. Just like God had compassion on Israel in the wilderness. We have Jesus full of compassion. But the miracle itself actually proves authority. We're supposed to see those two things together. We have a Lord showing compassion... In a way that shows authority. Think about that for a moment. Are there people today who have authority but no compassion? Are there people today who have all manner of authority that should not have authority? Is history full of examples of men and women who had authority and power but did not have compassion? Of course, there's lots of stories about that. But we have a story here that shows that our Savior in a single moment has authority and compassion. The application for us as Christians, of course, is that we're always able to have hope. He is able. I think there's a song about that, isn't there? He is able, the purpose is showing us all these miracles. Matthew shows his miracles of like uh, the healing of disease and the feeding of hungry and the giving of the sight to the blind. He's showing us that Jesus could care for all of these needs in order to point us to the idea that Jesus can take care of our biggest need, our spiritual poverty. A third application would be that Jesus makes the application to us that because he shows compassion, And because he has authority, we are free to show compassion and be servants of others. Or the Apostle Paul says in Philippians, instead of being people who play political games, instead of being the kind of people who only look out for ourselves, because Christ is full of compassion, because he is full of authority, we should become and should imitate the servant-mindedness of Christ. So the first thing we see in this step of showing acceptance, we see first of all the most important bedrock idea that Jesus is able. Now, we look at Peter's response number two. Number two, Peter responds with little faith and much doubt. This is unexpected. After seeing what they saw, we would expect there would be lots of faith and little doubt but we actually see peter respond with little faith and much doubt twice in these two accounts we're told that jesus was trying to get away and go pray that's the the reason the feeding of the five thousand happens where it happens because jesus had gone away to try and find a place to pray alone but the people found him after uh, providing all the food jesus sends the disciples ahead dismisses the crowd and once again seeks a place to pray All of that is just really supposed to explain to us why Jesus is not with the disciples when they go out to set sail. Matthew tells us that the disciples go out on the ship and the sailing gets very, very rough. The idea likely that of a storm. Here it is, it is late at night, the ship is getting crossed around, the disciples see a figure. Now if you were out on a boat and you're getting tossed about, and you saw somebody that looked like they were walking on water, what are you going to say? The disciples say, It's a ghost. Now, knowing that f- they the fear, Jesus shouts to them and says, Nope, not a ghost. It's me. I'm coming to join you. And then we get this story or this account about Peter that has two parts to it. First of all, Peter asks to step out in faith. This is very bold of Peter. He says, Lord, if it is you. Prove it by having me come out unto the water. He's willing to step out of the boat unto the water. But we know that Peter's faith here is not particularly stable. But Peter is displaying what in chapter 13 we saw, the parable of the mustard seed. The starting point here is the smallest amount of faith. But then we watch Peter have doubts and it fills him with fear. The second half of the story, Matthew tells us Peter, this important phrase here, Peter saw the wind. Now, we in Nebraska, we know what that's like, right? Seeing the wind. He saw the wind and he began to seek and he cried out for help. See how quickly this moved from this bold pronouncement? If it is you, Lord, have me come out unto the water. And then suddenly, full of doubts. There's another moment of compassion by our Lord. Peter has just utterly failed this moment. Jesus, though, doesn't ask him why, you do, why did he fear. We already know why he feared. Peter saw the wind. The question is where why such little faith? And the question is supposed to bring us back as a reader. This is the one who was able the one who has shown that he was able to feed the 5,000. The one who has shown that he is able to, uh, to walk on the water. And as he gets into the boat, we're told that the storm calls down. And he asks, why are you so, why do you have so little faith with, with the one who has proven that he is able? But, as I thought about it this week, if we're honest, this is what our faith looks like, isn't it? We carry with us this little bit of faith. That's completely upended if the wrong thing happens. We do our devotions, we pray, we serve in the church, we sing beautiful hymns. But we're upended by the decision we don't like. We're upended by a child who's having a bad day. We're upended by a rude customer or a rude employee. We see the wind and whoosh! It's all gone, isn't it? Years and years, perhaps, of following faithfully. And the right thing happens and whoosh! It's all gone. But there's encouragement here. Just because you and I look at the wind in panic doesn't mean that the little faith that is there is suddenly lost. This summer, of course, we know that we'd not have a lot of rain. Of course, every year, in the springtime, my wife and I, one of the joys of our year is to get out into the garden to begin to put things in the ground. Then it doesn't rain, and it doesn't rain, and it doesn't rain. You think to yourself, the seed is lost. But it isn't. Over the course of your life, let me explain it this way. Over the course of your life, many of you have probably prayed hundreds of prayers. And I bet you that you have forgotten most of them yet our lord has not forgotten a single one you see your prayers are not suddenly lost because you can't remember praying them this is the wonderful doctrine of the perseverance of the saints the faith we show calling upon the lord to be saved it is a faith allowing us to believe in christ for salvation it's not lost because we can't feel it anymore it's not lost because we might even feel the opposite and why is this true Because just like the disciples in the story, the Lord is the sovereign God who brought the circumstances. Even though your faith appears weak and maybe even gone altogether, you see your security and place in Christ is not lost. Because our Lord is very aware of what's happening to you. Your union with Christ is not lost. Because it was not based on your life, but on his, his life, his death, his resurrection, his power. As the old preachers used to say, it is not the measure of your faith that saves you and unites you with Christ. It is the object of your faith. Christ himself who secures these things. Brings us to number three. So we see that he's able. And we watch this example of just a small amount of faith begin to germinate. And even the filling of doubt and fear is not able to kill it. In verse 33, we see it says that those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. This is an expression of embrace or acceptance of Jesus. First of all, we see that they worshipped him. Matthew shows us this. If you go back into the Old Testament, like Exodus 14 and 15, Psalm 107, the story of Jonah, the proper response to the deliverance of God is worship. So, the proper response to your salvation, your deliverance from God, is worship, it is the idea of weight. You want to think about it this way. The disciples were so full of what they had seen and they were so full of what the moment brought. It pressed down upon them and out came worship. And then secondly, they declared him divine. They said, truly, you are the son of God. It's more than just a confession. It's a statement of deliverance. It's an affirmation of belief that he is the one who is able, walking on water, calming the storm, uh, multiplying the bread and the fish, it is a divine attribute. This is a God who is able to make another man, Peter, walk on the water, even if it was just briefly. We know that when push comes to shove, later, all these disciples are going to run. But the object of their faith is strong. Shoni so is able to deliver Tony is able to only do do things that can only be attributed to deity. Perhaps we forget. We forget that our relationship with God is based on the life, death, and resurrection of a Middle Eastern Jewish man. Think about, or maybe ask yourself the question, what what would you have to experience to see somebody standing in front of you physically and declare them worthy of worship that belongs to God alone? But that's exactly what happened. These men saw this and they, and they had the smallest little faith and, and the pressure pressed down upon them. And all they could do was worship and give worship that reserved for God alone to this man who was standing in front of them on this boat. Matthew said, or in earlier in the book of Matthew, Jesus said that those who call upon the uh, who those who God calls will hear the shepherd's voice. And once again, this is not about the strength of your faith, but the strength of the object of your faith. Ephesians tells us that Jesus is not only able to raise the physical dead, but raise the spiritual dead. We're told in Ephesians, Jesus is able to turn a thief into a philanthropist. He's able to turn a liar into an encourager. The bitter into somebody full of grace and forgiveness. Or another way to say it is that the Bible tells us that Jesus is still calming waters. And one day, we'll calm the spiritual sea for good. But Let me also say this. Is our worship only spurred on by what he does for us? Is our worship only spirit on when the mood is right? When we like the song, when we like the message, when our worship makes us feel good inside? Or can we worship on the fact that he is worthy of it on the basis of himself alone? The Bible says salvation comes to those who not only believe but confess. That's the same as confessing he is able. He is able to carry you through. What else does Jesus need to do to get your worship? And if you put your faith in him, be like the disciples and see that he is worthy of it. So I told you the story at the beginning. My sibling failed again and again to bring home that Nintendo. Creating a sense in the house that they could not be trusted. But Jesus in these two accounts shows us the opposite. In the feeding of the 5,000, he shows he is able to do more than Moses and more than Elisha. And that with him there is gracious abundance. In the walking on water, we saw that a man who had weak faith and was full of doubt, yet the object of his faith, Jesus Christ, was firm and unshakable. And we saw at the end of these two accounts, we saw that Jesus is worthy of worship simply for being the Son of God. And yes, he will and he does do amazing things in us and others, but his worthiness of worship is on the basis of who he is, Jesus Christ, the Lord of heaven and earth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these simple truths. He's able, he's able. And Lord, we thank you for the reality that it is the smallest amount of faith that is able to carry us as the object of our faith, is where all the strength is. And I pray, Father, that would lead us, just like it did to the disciples, it would lead us straight to worship, to embrace, to acceptance, to belief, to faith, to salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.